Hey, chiropractors and marketers. We are ready for another modern chiropractic marketing show with Dr. Kevin Christie, where we discuss the latest in marketing strategies, content marketing, direct response marketing, and business development with some of the leading experts in the industry. Hey, docs. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Chiropractic Marketing Show. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Christie, and today I have an episode where I interview Crystal Meisenheimer of Progressive Practice Sales, and we're going to dive into buying, selling, uh, evaluating practices, and we actually get really specific and we get pretty uh, detailed in some of the answers and the specifics of it. It can be very tricky, but it, but it doesn't have to be. And so we're going to dive into that. But before we do, I want to discuss the free course we have for the Chiropractic Success Academy. It's going to be a little sampling of the different modules within the different channels of the academy. You know, we have the producer channel, which is your marketing, the business person channel, the clinician, and the mindset channel. And so we have some videos that we sampled from the academy to put it in there. And this is for you as a free course. And you can go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash CSA free course to get that information. All you got to do is just uh, sign up, uh, register, get right into your inbox and you'll have the course. Okay. So check that out. It's a, it's an exciting little taste of what we have going on in the academy and, and I know you'll like it. All right. So let's go through our wins, obstacles, and Facebook posts. Uh, the wins, we had two great holiday parties. We had our Boca Raton office holiday party dinner, I should call it, I guess. And then the next night we had our Miami one down in Miami. In our Miami office, we have a collection of a fitness group, a physical therapy group, and our chiropractic group. So we all combine together and have a big, huge dinner, and that went really well as well. So it was nice to get everybody together and, and have a good time and enjoy the holidays. The obstacle so far this month has been trying to coordinate the days off and the schedules and things like that. A lot of people travel I think, I wouldn't say it's unique to South Florida, but a lot of the people that live here and work here aren't necessarily from South Florida. So a lot of the families are in other places. So my staff and other team members and things like that are traveling. So we have some, and also obviously some days off, but it's just an obstacle that you should be prepared for in December's. But nonetheless, it is an obstacle. The Facebook post highlight, we had... Someone had posted in, actually, I had posted in there the clicker for the Facebook business page where you put this in your office. People can check in and, and like your Facebook business page, and it'll actually, at the same time, it'll click over. So, like if you had, you know, 2000 and if someone liked it right in your waiting room, it would go to 2001 and they would see it. So, it's a way of, getting more business likes on your on your Facebook page. And there was some back and forth on it, you know, if it was worth it, a few hundred dollars, things like that. And there was a post about it not being, don't spend the money on that and spend the money on the Facebook ads or other type of, of marketing. But I don't think it's a zero sum game. And I kind of chimed in on that where, yeah, there's different ways you can spend your marketing dollars and some are going to have better ROIs than others. But Sometimes you need to experiment, and I think one of the benefits, and this is what I wanted to get through on the comment section of that post, was that the more you get business likes on your Facebook business page that are people that know, like, and trust you, because someone had said, well, why, you know, why do I want people that are already new patients? Why do I care if they like my business page because they're already in my office? Like, well, 
those are people that are know, like, and trust. And obviously you want to have marketing to, you know, people that are in your practice and people that finish treatment plans and have not been in, you want to stay top of mind. And ultimately the more people that like your business page and the more people that know, like, and trust you already, it's going to be better when you do run Facebook ads or you do lookalike audiences, you know, you can do a 1% lookalike audience of people that like your business page, or you can do people that like your business page and their friends and family. Those are all going to be people that already know, like, and trust you. And they're going to be more prone to engage with your posts, your content, and your ads. And Facebook likes that. And Facebook will actually drive down the cost of engagement or conversion to people that are engaged and and like your material. People that don't, they charge more money because Facebook doesn't want to deliver stuff to people's news feeds that they don't want to see. If we can agree that if we have more people that know, like, and trust us liking our business page and we're going to run content to them and Facebook ads and all that, if we can agree that that can increase engagement and decrease cost of engagement and conversions, then we can say, okay, now maybe if there is something that will increase the amount of business page likes of people that already know, like, and trust me, that could be a very good thing and actually reduce costs of marketing so it wouldn't be without investment value. And so that was part of the argument there is that maybe this works. It, you know, I got a few people that have bought it and are trying it and they're going to let us know how it goes. Maybe more patients are liking their business page and now more of their content is going to get in front of them consistently over the months, days, and years. And it's going to be cheaper to do so. I would say that would be a wise investment of a few hundred dollars if it does that. So we will, we will see. But the point of me bringing it up on this podcast is that whole idea of is no like and trust people increasing engagement, decreasing the cost of that set engagement and getting more out of your marketing dollars. So it can be a good ROI. Okay. So let's get into our episode again. This is going to be with Crystal Meisenheimer and she is of progressive practice sales. We actually have done a phone consult. As you'll see in this episode, we are in the process. I have the Miami office and the doctor that's down there potentially to try to buy that practice. So we are working with them and did a consult that went really well. And we're going to go through the, the process. But I asked a lot of pointed questions and Crystal was kind enough to give us some honest and objective answers. I think this helps everybody, even if you are a student, an early grad, a seasoned veteran, but at some point you may want to buy or sell a practice and you want to make sure that you are thinking with the end in mind. So even if you are own your own practice, you're only a few years in, you're not selling for another 25 years, you need to start thinking now about that and preparing for it. For instance, we talk about naming and we talk about marketing plans and things of that nature. So Enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from it, and I know you will too. All right. Welcome to the show, Crystal. I really appreciate your time today. Before we dive into the main topics of today's show, let's hear a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am part of the partnership that founded Progressive Practice Sales. My husband is my partner. We've been doing this for about four years now, and we have currently grown to a team of 11. Um, We are the premier chiropractic practice brokerage um, in the industry. We have 
basically come in and tried to rebuild it from the ground up just because of the fact that we had participated in three of our own practice sales Mm -hmm. prior to getting into this industry. And we just saw a lot of holes in the process, a lot of things that needed to be modernized. It didn't seem optimized for the seller or the buyer. And so, you know, seeing all those spaces for improvement really opened our eyes to a huge opportunity. So we've been working very hard improving all the holes that we saw. And uh, we currently have 75 active listings on our website, which, you know, we're representing about $25 million there. And then we have about 50 more clients that are in the process of being valued and getting their listing package put together. So lots of exciting growth for sure. Definitely. And just a little bit of a background to our audience. Uh, this is our third time recording this this episode. A little bit of a snafu on my end on that, but we're getting that figured out. Um, <laughs> but since we talked last, the reason I bring that up, since, since we did talk last is that um, your husband did have a really good conversation with my doctor down in Miami who is in the process. You know, we're in the process of him buying that particular office. And I, I can say that Larry got off that call extremely encouraged. And a lot of his concerns were addressed. And there's a lot more confidence, I would say, on both of our ends since that call. So uh, I do want to thank you uh, for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad to hear that because that's definitely the idea behind what we do. Yeah. You know, not every time do I get to interview someone where I'm actually, you know, started to utilize their services. Sometimes it has, but it definitely helps me with this process of interviewing stuff. So maybe that was a positive of the previous two episodes not being recorded (laughs) properly, (laughs) but let's dive right in. I want to start with a chiropractor who is looking to purchase an existing clinic. What should they take into consideration in that situation? A chiropractor who's looking to purchase an existing clinic, obviously one of the biggest constraints they're going to be facing is financially. So they would definitely want to have a consultation with someone who can walk them through all of their financial options because depending on a lot of factors, there may be more funds available for them than they initially think. So that would be the first step is figuring out exactly where you really lie in your terms of ability to acquire something. When they're looking to evaluate different options, the thing about business acquisitions is they're built almost entirely on trust. So you've got tax returns to back up the numbers, but even those, who knows who's vetted them? And so it's really important for the buyer to feel very comfortable with the seller and with the integrity of the seller's information that they're providing and with the broker as well, because again, it's all built on trust. And so one thing that we do in our company is we really try and focus on being transparent. And so any buyer who is looking at information and they're feeling like it's not adding up, they need to be questioning that. They need to be asking the hard questions that sometimes can be kind of uncomfortable because you know, ultimately they're just taking people at their words. And one other thing that I would point out in terms of something to really look for in an opportunity is one of the best benefits of buying a business is so much of the infrastructure is already in place. So you don't have to come in and do all the minutia that's involved in building a practice from scratch. So when you're looking at a practice that's available, you want to be thinking about the key strengths that you're bringing to this practice potentially and looking for opportunities in those areas to really utilize your strengths. No, that makes a lot of sense too. And you mentioned some of the transparency. I've talked to chiropractors that I help out 
more on the marketing side of things or just practice development. And I've had a couple where there's been concerns where they purchased a practice that wasn't congruent with the style of practice they were going to have. And there was also some things that they didn't know about kind of lurking on there. And they didn't do, admittedly, they didn't do the due diligence that they should have when, when they did that. And now they're trying to kind of retrofit it. And it's a little bit of a struggle. I'm sure you've seen that plenty of times. Yeah. You know, sometimes that can really be mitigated. You know, someone will be coming in and let's say that they want to practice more of a hands-on adjustment style and the practice is more activator or some kind of instrument adjusting. So obviously that's not a 100% fit, but maybe they love the area or other aspects of it seem perfect. So you can mitigate that through a really well-planned transition, you know, of really connecting with the patients, you know, one-on-one observing the selling doctor doing an adjustment and then having the selling doctor observe you doing the adjustment on the next time and asking the patient for the feedback on the two different adjusting styles. What did you like from this? And what did you like from that? Let's create a customized treatment plan for you so that moving forward, you're getting the best of both worlds, right? So you're, Mm -hmm. you're trying to integrate some of the things that you want to do, but still respecting the previous style of care that they've gotten. Most patients will stay for that if they sense that you're a genuine person uh-huh. and they like you know, what you're putting together for them. And then obviously with the new patients, you're only going to be offering them what it is you want to do. So you can overcome that. However, you really need to start overcoming that immediately uh-huh. in the transition. It's not something that you can kind of pop in and surprise people with, you know, without any kind of forethought into planning it. So you're saying there, there definitely needs to be a transition period. And sometimes the transition is going to look different. If the treatment style is, is different, then that's got to be a part of it. Are there any other uh, thoughts you have around that transition period, whether it's before the sale, during the sale or after the sale? Yeah. So we have a really involved transition Mm -hmm. process that we put our clients through. So starting from the time that they sign the letter of intent, we have tasks for both the buyer and the seller throughout the process. And so we're having them think about things and plan things and get things done so that at the end, after closing, Mm -hmm. all of the prep work's already in place. But I would say the biggest thing that needs to be kept in mind for a transition is that the buyer needs to change as little as possible for the first six to 12 weeks, uh, which is really hard because they just spent a lot of money and they've got all these great ideas and they're just so excited. And I get that, but mm-hmm. these patients just experienced a huge change. Now, less so of course, in the case of an associate who has already been in the practice, but if the patients have just changed a provider, the last thing that they want to see is really dramatic changes, mm-hmm. you know, in staffing or hours or price points or, visit flow or anything like that. Cause they're just trying to get used to you. You are a big enough change for most people to handle for a bit. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see buyers make is they get this idea that, you know, they're going to go in and they're going to change everything to, let's say it was a, a cash practice and people mm-hmm. pay per visit and they decide they're going to change it to you know, these really big treatment plans. And it's $3,500 up front and everybody's got to get into this rotation right away. That's hard. That is a really hard thing to transition people to who are still looking at you like, well, you're not Dr. Smith. You got to build rapport and trust with them before you try and change everything that they know. Yeah. And I'm assuming there's like a hierarchy of difficulty, right? Like buying a practice that's not the same treatment style is probably on the more difficult spectrum and then moving forward. Okay. Maybe it's you buying a practice where 
the treatment and evaluation uh, systems are basically the same. That's probably easier. Probably next is an associate buying a practice that they've been working in for a period of time. That's probably pretty, uh, I, I would assume, easier transition. And then um, kind of like, you know, I used Larry as an example. He's been running our Miami office since we opened it in 2012. The patient's frankly don't see me too often. So when he does buy it, like there's really no transition in that sense. So I'm sure that's a lot easier as well. Is that kind of, did I tackle that correctly? Yes. I would say that that is a very accurate representation of it, you know, in sort of the best case scenario that that's sort of how it would flow. But again, you know, let's say that your associate, you know, says, okay, haha, it's finally mine. Yeah. I can do whatever I want with it. And then starts making a bunch of structural changes. Mm-hmm. Well, that can quickly turn into a worse transition than someone yeah. who, you know, is wanting to change it from a pediatrics practice to, you know, a sports injury practice. Oh, you know? makes sense. Yep. Yeah. So there's still like, you got to be aware of that uh, changing too much type of thing. Absolutely. That is the biggest, biggest mistake that I see buyers make. And it's just, it's excitement. You know, Mm -hmm. this is finally mine. I am the director. I want to make it my own. And really the best thing that they could possibly do is take that time instead, build rapport with the patients and the staff and get people's advice. Like, what do you think? What would you like to see changed around here? You Mm -hmm. may not take all of their input, but you might learn something, especially for someone who hasn't been in the practice before, because there's Uh so much that they don't even know that they don't know. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot. There's a lot to it for sure. All right, perfect. So how should a chiropractor properly evaluate the actual practice? Um, Obviously, we don't have to go into exact details, but what's the process of, of really valuing that? What are some of the positive factors that would go into the sale price? Yeah. So when we value a clinic, everything's based off off of the financials and tax returns, you know, are obviously king compared to a profit and loss statement. So we're going to take the last three years of tax returns and the current year profit and loss statement. Uh We're going to adjust everything so that all of the tax strategy has been taken out. So then we've got the, the financial numbers that we can stand on. And then from there, we look at about 30 different factors Uh um, that play into the valuation. So some of the big ones that we look at are profit margin. Uh We look at the desirability of the area and we look at the cost of living of the area. We look at the current marketing. Some of the things that doctors do that can sort of impact their potential sale negatively is they stop marketing. That's a huge Uh one. They say, well, I don't need to market anymore. I get more than enough off of referrals. The problem is, is the person who buys the clinic, those referrals are going to dry up for a period of time. And the fear of the buyer is that they'll never come back. I'll never become Dr. Smith. And so therefore, you know, I'll never have this source again. Well, you're speaking my tune for sure. I've mentioned that in the past on this podcast and in our Facebook groups a lot where, you know, if you sit down at the table, uh, whatever the exit strategy is in your career, and you provide great P&Ls, obviously great tax returns. And then you also and say, we've got this comprehensive marketing strategy that's been going on for X amount of years. And we've got an email list here. This is somebody, this is like the whole strategy. That's going to be a much better exit strategy on a sale than not having a marketing plan. Oh, it's huge. It really is huge. And I would say another thing that doctors have done incorrectly for purposes of a sale is not making the clinic transferable enough in terms of marketing, web presence, et cetera. So the practice is named after them. So the buyer can't take on the name 
all of the the reviews on the website or on the internet are saying things like mm-hmm. Dr. Smith is just amazing instead of, you know, the team at New Branch Chiropractic or whatever it is. So all of that, the buyer's looking at it and they're saying, well, I'm not going to be able to use this. And, you know, they get X number of new patients off of internet presence, but none of that refers to me. So just looking at everything that you do and making it more transferable. So maybe your clinic is named John Smith Chiropractic. Well, you're not planning on selling anytime soon. So why change it might be the thought process, but absolutely not. Now's the time to change it because you can keep johnsmithchiropractic.com and you know centralcitychiropractic.com running at the same time and just move things over over the course mm-hmm. of the next five years. And it's almost seamless to your patients. Yeah, I... I named mine HealthFit and then Chiropractic and Sports Recovery. I did that back in 2010 when I opened up my own practice because I knew I wanted to have another location or maybe even more locations. And then obviously I, I knew the the sellability of your last name is not high. So I, I did that and in 2012 opened up the one in Miami. So that really helped out. And then the other thing I even did was on my website when it was just me, it was all about me which isn't even a great strategy anyway. But then when I opened up the Miami office, I changed a lot of the Dr. Christie's to like we or health fit or everything became more we and health fit in us versus me centric, right? Because we now had multiples. And, and then even to the point where when we started developing our email strategy, we have an email list for my Boca Raton office and we have an email list for our Miami office. So that's separate as well because some of the emails we send out aren't congruent with the two lists. And so we've kind of, we teased all that out as we, we did go along. And I think what you said is, is really helpful because I've had chiropractors ask that too, should I change my name and be proactive? And I was like, yeah, yeah, you should. I mean, don't, you don't do it tomorrow if, if you're busy doing other things, but put it on your list for 2019. Um, if you're younger, if you're selling it in 2019, do it now, (laughs) 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 but you know, definitely get that done. If that's your end game, it's just that whole mindset of have the end in mind Mm -hmm. when you're doing anything. So thanks for bringing up some of those negative factors. I think people need to hear that proactively. Are there any other negative factors that you can think of? Well, a lot of the negatives, you know, are really out of the seller's control. I mean, if you are, you know, let's say that you've had a clinic in a high cost of living area and maybe your numbers, you know, used to be really strong because you were in a building phase and you just, you know, you're taking more time off, you know, spending time traveling or whatnot. And so now you're down to a part-time clinic and the money is good for you, but it's, it would be really challenging for a buyer to take that clinic on because it doesn't provide a professional level of income. And then also a smaller clinic like that, especially in a high cost of living area, mm-hmm. is much more challenging to finance. There's a lot less options of banks who will even take things on that are under $100,000. And yeah. we we get a lot of those. So we've managed to put together financing resources that will help with those clinics. But ultimately, I would say that it, especially if you're in a high cost of living area, that your exit strategy needs to be taken like planning to to exit closer to the top you don't want to take those years of decline Mm -hmm. because it will devalue your clinic much more significantly than it would someone in a really inexpensive place to live makes sense and i you know i think it's important for the valuation you know i I would say historically what i've seen a lot of times is you know we're obviously not going to get the huge multiplier you know like if you're selling or buying it you know if you got some tech company it might be a 
10x multiplier, right? Like revenue of a million, or you see these ones like, oh, they sold it for $3 billion, but they actually haven't made any profits in it in two years, right? <laughs> so like that's not going to happen in, in chiropractic. And so you're not going to get those multiple X uh, multipliers too often, let alone probably ever. But I'm sure there are times where it happens. But you're, you're basically saying there's a lot of factors and it's not as cut and dry as 0.5x or 1x or 1.5x, things like that, that you kind, of, you kind of see float out in the industry. Is that right? There are some numbers that you can use to come up with a ballpark. So for example, an average clinic, that would be a clinic that's making over 100,000 net profit a year. Mm-hmm. In general, it's going to land somewhere between 1.3 and 1.5 times net income but that's a very general number and it's not taking Mm -hmm. into account any of those other factors because you get enough of those intangible factors that are dragging it down and it it falls out of that range very quickly. And then there's other factors that can put a ceiling on it where it doesn't get into that either. It can be a really strong clinic and have a ceiling on it. And what happens, you know, when people aren't aware of all of the limitations that come into place, especially when there's going to be bank financing, and you know they can really price their clinic a place that's not sustainable. And then the most devastating thing happens, which is where you have a buyer, they're ready to move forward, and the bank won't fund it yeah. because it's just not it's it's not a doable um, deal for them. It's not viable. So mm-hmm. the ballpark is good for getting an idea of would now work for me. Could I yeah. could I possibly sell? This is maybe what I'm looking at, but there's a lot of situations where you're not going to fall into that range. And I believe you made the distinction that you said 1.3 to 1.5x of the profit, the yearly profit, not of the yearly revenue. Right. And another thing that's important about that is we are going through and adjusting those numbers. So we're not talking about the net profit on the tax return. There's, it it usually is vastly different from that. Yes. That's a good point too. Yeah. Because you have to remove like the seller's doctor's pay out of that, right? Like that's technically going to be profit. Right. So there's a lot of things that fall on that tax return that you're writing off that are legitimate business expenses, but they are indeed profit for the buyer. And the bank will accept a lot of those. Now there's other things that you would think, well, this, if we're going to go down that road, this also should be added back in this and this and this, and the banks won't accept it. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful in that strategy that you're only utilizing ad backs that are, are really going to be viable. And then another thing that you have to be careful about is again, everything's built on trust. And so if you have this, this financial statement and it's just, you know, riddled with ad backs and you're, Mm -hmm. you know, you're adding back $17 here and, you know, people start to feel like, Wow, this this person's really pushing it. You know, they're re- are the what what is this and is this even real and and can I trust any of these numbers? So you have to really take a a long term view mm-hmm. when you're doing the addbacks as well. It makes sense. No, it's I think that's part of the thing people need help with is that the profit and loss statements are going to tell a different story than the tax returns. And a lot of the money that the owner is spending as business expenses, like you said, is just kind of the benefit of being a small business owner within legal tax purposes and reasons. But that could really be actual profit uh, for the buyer. So you have to really tease that out. And um, I'm glad you made mention of that because that's a, that's a big factor for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, makes, makes a lot of sense. And then there's other, like with this situation and us selling a satellite office, 
I had my accountant kind of put together things where, you know, we have the law of scale right now where mm-hmm. there's certain things that the Miami office doesn't have to pay for right now because it's just, it's integrated into the Boca office. Well, that might be different during a sale. So there might be some things that actually could increase some overhead there, but you got to really know the numbers. And that's what obviously you guys are doing to help figure that out. So there's no secrets. There shouldn't be any secrets. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's incredibly important. The, the buyer's sense of comfort with the financial statements is mm-hmm. the number one indicator of whether or not the sale will move forward. And, no and, the, rea- and the reality of it is, is if you're the buyer, there's a chance you've never owned a business before and you have no idea of any of this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know any of it uh, until yesterday. Now, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like I, when I opened my own practice in 2010, I didn't know half that stuff. And then over the last eight years with help of a lot of people, like I've got a really good grasp of it now, but it, it takes time. And so you got to uncover those numbers and really understand them. So Yeah, absolutely. And there's a huge benefit to buyers having representation for that because, again, there is so much that they don't know. And there's a lot of things that they don't even realize that they can necessarily ask. All right. So how are banks looking upon the loans for chiropractors? What is some of the things that you guys are seeing and working with banks and such? Lending has definitely opened up. There was a good period of time after the recession where you know you couldn't get lending for a chiropractic clinic to save your life. Yep. And that is not the case anymore. However, the vast majority of banks still do not lend on chiropractic deals. My husband likes to say you can go to a thousand banks that do SBA and initially they're all going to tell you, yeah, absolutely, we can help you because they're, you know, you're in the bank, maybe you're in Wells Fargo and that's where you bank and you talk to the guy in there and that's his job is to sell loans. Yes, absolutely. You're a great customer. We can help you. Well, three months down the road, you know, sorry, we actually don't do chiropractic acquisitions. And it's because banks recognize them as being pretty risky because historically it's been a place where acquisitions have had problems. And a lot of that I think is because chiropractors don't necessarily get a ton of business advice. And a lot of the funding that's gone bad has been for startup funding. Mm -hmm. You know, because you you get out of school, you take out a hundred thousand dollar loan, and then you realize, oh no, I don't know anything about anything but how to you know get someone well. So we have taken the time to build up a reservoir of mm-hmm. banks that do work with chiropractic acquisition, so they are out there. But here's the thing about that: we offer financing acquisition services, and there's several other independent loan brokers out there who do this. And there's many that I worked with that have been very reputable and wonderful but it is a completely unregulated industry. Uh There is nothing that regulates small business loan acquisition brokerage. So you have to be really careful when you're out there and you're talking to people because the brokers, you know, they shop your loan, they get you the best deal, they package it together, they walk it through closing, or at least that's what they're supposed to do. I can tell horror stories of people who have paid huge amounts of money up front, which we don't ask for, yeah. Um, we only get funded at closing, but other, you know, brokers and, and, you know, there's a reason why that industry has a reputation. So you just have to be really careful who you work with. Makes sense. And then as far as, since you guys have built this relationship with some of the banks, I'm assuming, maybe I'm assuming wrong, but if the banks know that you're working hand in hand with the buyer seller process, then they probably have even more confidence. Oh yeah. No, we have a great relationship with our banks. And one of the reasons why is because we're so focused on transparency. Uh So we have 
what I have been told over and over and over to be the best information package in the industry. They're able to do so much of the underwriting just based off of the information that we give them. And then they also know, you know, we don't, we can't vet the numbers for our sellers because that would require a level of accounting that wouldn't make sense for these types of sales. But we do go through and we do really clean it up and we work with the seller to make sure that the information is really clean and clear. And so as such, when we bring a deal to our banks, they have a real high level of confidence, you know, that we're going to be able to get it done. And because of this, we have an amazing close rate. We close an average of four clinics a month. Mm -hmm. And I would say 90, 95% of them utilize some type of bank financing. And in 2018, we only had two declines. Oh, wow. Yeah. And those were actually due to buyer errors. They okay. did not heed our advice as to yeah. what to do in the process. And so that, that wasn't really our fault. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. But, um, yeah. And even if it was your fault, two out of all those is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree. I yeah, agree. We've got an amazing financing director yeah. and she does a great job. I just remember that feeling in 2008 because I went through the process. I was in a partnership at the time when the economy collapsed and man, it affected my practice really bad at the time. And then I was trying to get a loan to, to buy, at the time, to buy the rest of the practice. And it was impossible. I mean, mm-hmm. the banks were just closed down for sure. But I was lucky enough in 2010 to go the opposite way where I sold my part of the practice and then opened up my own. So I didn't need the bank because it just was really hard and it, and it was frustrating. So it's encouraging that not only the banks are a little bit better, a lot better right now, also you have a relationship with them to really help with that process. Cause I think that's a big concern. A lot of um, buyers and sellers do have. So I just have one more question for you before I let you go. And the topic I get a lot of people ask me about is real estate as it ties into say the practice sale. I'm assuming that's a benefit. Could you just touch on that? Like the, the real estate of the practice in conjunction with the the business and how that could potentially work? Yeah. So having the real estate available um, concurrently is definitely a benefit. It Mm -hmm. can improve the terms of the lending quite significantly for a buyer if they want to move forward on both parts together. Mm -hmm. The place where you get hung up on that is let's say that you have some real estate that's really appreciated in value. And then you've also got a clinic that's been in decline. And Mm -hmm. so there's a low amount of cash flow relative to the cost of what it's going to take to acquire both together. Gotcha. So that can be problematic. There's ways to offset that. And there's Mm -hmm. certain types of buyers that won't have a problem with that, but it can limit your marketplace. What we always tell sellers is the absolute best strategy is to make the real estate also available, but optional. So therefore your price point makes sense in the marketplace. You know, they're not looking at something that generates $200,000 net a year and it's priced at, you know, $1.4 million, you know, that doesn't make sense. So you want the numbers at first glance to make sense. So if you can list it that way, that's definitely optimal. Perfect. All right. Thank you. How can our audience find you? Definitely the best way to find us is uh, at our website, which is at progressivepracticesales.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I know we'll be talking soon. Yep. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Modern Chiropractic Marketing Show with Dr. Kevin Christie. Tune in next week for another episode that will enhance your marketing, business, and practice growth. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Dr. Christie's Modern Desk Jockey podcast and share with your desk-sitting patients. In the Modern Desk Jockey, 
Dr. Christie provides health and wellness best practices from some of the leading experts in the corporate wellness industry. Remember, chiropractic practice isn't easy, but it shouldn't be overwhelming. Keep leveling up.